From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today's guest is a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service and serves as the Senior Public Health Advisor for the Office of Minority Health out of Dallas, Texas. He's an experienced family nurse practitioner with more than 25 years of combined federal health care experience and has served on countless international missions, including Afghanistan, the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and as officer in charge of the Commission Court's Ebola response team in West Africa. If that weren't enough, he also finds the time to serve on the AANP Board of Directors as the Region 6 Director. Please help me welcome my friend, Captain James Dickens. Welcome to NP Pulse, Captain James Dickens. It's so nice to have you with us here today. Thank you, Madam President. Glad to be able to join you. (laughs) It's always good to see you, and I'm so excited that we're going to be able to talk a little bit more about you and your career, how um, it's just been such a a long and very adventurous career, and I just can't wait to hear you sharing a little bit more about it. Why don't you just start by telling us about what you do now? Well, thank you for the opportunity, um, Madam President, and it it has been a long and sundry career, uh, 35 years uh, <laughs> active duty military and working for the government um, in the uniformed services. And um, currently I'm a, a long-term care one manager uh, for the CMS uh, location Dallas. And we cover five states, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, very similar to our regional director's responsibility for region six. And um and um, that's that includes about 2,000 nursing homes that we have regulatory responsibility for, and as you can imagine, Texas has about a thousand of those nursing homes. And and as you know, um, uh, we were hard hit in the in the nursing home space uh, during COVID, and so uh, the work has been pretty intense. And uh, and and uh, we we're just trying to take care of the health and safety and wellness of all the HHS and CMS beneficiaries throughout the region and certainly throughout the nation. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for everything you've done. It's been such a long uh, few years, and you've been right there at the very front of it all, and we're so appreciative of everything. And you mentioned you're in the uniformed services, so tell us a little bit more about that. So, yeah, many of us are familiar with uh, our our armed services, which Mm -hmm. is the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and the Coast Guard and and the other three services are one of our newer services. Um, you know, you have the U.S. Public Health Service that's been around for a long time. So we work directly under the leadership of the Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Murthy, and who's the uh, uh, it's his second time uh, uh, being the Surgeon General. Had the pleasure of working with him under the, the uh, Obama administration as a Surgeon General. 
And um, you have also NOAA, you know, the hurricane hunters, uh, that, okay. those are considered uniformed services, as well as the newest service that was stood up on the uh, uh, 45's administration, uh, President Trump's administration, was the uh, uh, Space Force. And so okay. we have eight uniformed services now uh, that are recognized by Congress and the VA. Wow, I didn't, I don't know that I've heard of the Space Force, so that's really exciting and and definitely where we're going in the future. So, James, do you mind if I call you James? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, (laughs) James, so you're a nurse, you're a nurse practitioner, and um, I think it's fascinating all of the many different paths that nurses can take in their careers and, and, and different paths throughout their careers. And you've taken a path in the uniform services, I think is very unique and not everybody knows that that's, that's a pathway they can take. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you came to be where you are today? Absolutely. And so for folks that know me, I'm, I'm from the Delta, Northeast Louisiana, the Mississippi Delta area where the Doug Dynasty guys are from, actually from <laughs> West Monroe, Louisiana. So if one can imagine leaving Louisiana in 1987 and around October, headed to Anchorage, Alaska. Um, oh, wow. You're talking about blowing your hair back. Um, <clears throat> going to Alaska, it was dark. It was cold outside and um, snow everywhere. I'd never seen that much snow in all my life except uh, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> hunting polar bears or something of that nature. And so I-, I went to Anchorage, Alaska, and that's where my career really began as a medic in the Air Force. And um, I was fortunate enough to go into the operating room uh, and, and work as a, a surgical scrub tech or CST, certified surgical technician in the Air Force. And then that road, my pathway was very serendipitous in terms of uh, where I went from there. Um, got a, uh, accepted to a special duty assignment to work in South Korea, Pusan, South Korea. And, um, and so I started taking classes again and, and uh, became a nurse. And, and one of the things that I would say is... Uh, Went, ended up at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, where I did uh, finished up, uh, um, um, received an associate's degree as, as a surgical scrub nurse, scrub okay. tech, and then went on and got a bachelor's in nursing. And then I uh, went on through a HRSA program at the time. And then I had my uh, VA veterans benefits. I stayed in the reserves uh, during the entire time and uh, got my master's as a nurse practitioner at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. And then subsequently okay. went to uh, Texas Tech to do the DMP. But my uh, route was uh, uh, for nursing was not the, uh, as you indicated earlier, it wasn't the uh, high school, you know, pipeline pathway to nursing. Mm-hmm. It was very serendipitous. And even for me, where I'm at now, uh, career-wise, is non-traditional. And so my entire pathway has been just kind of non-traditional. Um, but it's been serendipitous in nature, just having to be in the right place at the right time and getting the opportunities. Um, so that, yeah. that's it in a nutshell. It, it, it is really interesting. And so it sounded like you knew early on that you wanted to go into nursing and you were able to pursue that pathway at the same time, serve uh, in the uniformed services. So this whole um, year, we have been really um, highlighting nurse practitioners in, in new and unique uh, positions, 
nurse practitioners that have taken um, different pathways and and really led in in many respects. And of course, you've already shared with us you you lead in so many respects as a nurse practitioner and uh, in our nation as a leader and in so many respects. James, I remember uh, in early uh, twenty twenty. Um, I invited you to come and speak with uh, us in Vanderbilt. You came to speak with our nurse practitioners there at Vanderbilt. And we had just kind of heard a little bit about COVID. I know you knew a lot more than we did, but we had started to hear the the rumblings of it. But when you came to visit us, you actually came. We were really focused on your experiences with the Ebola uh, crisis and and everything that was happening with Ebola and we you shared a story about um, one of your deployments where you went over and you were um, helping with the team um, during the Ebola crisis in, in in Africa and so I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about the Ebola trip because that was way before we started talking about COVID. Absolutely, and so again under the Surgeon General uh, Vice Admiral Murthy. Um, uh, we were sent under the from the National Security Council, and I think Ron Klain at the time was the person from the National Security Council, and I was on team two. I was the only nurse that uh, led a team of uh, uh, interpe- inter- interprofessional team members, uh, physicians and uh, scientists, uh, veterinarians, and, and, and the like, um, that uh, I was, uh, again, over team two, and we were in Monrovia, Liberia, and mm-hmm. we had direct direct patient care responsibilities uh, for uh, Niber- uh, Liberian nationals at uh, Roberts Airport right outside of Monrovia. And that was a very rewarding experience for me personally. And uh, it's one that I get emotional thinking about all the time because I feel like we could have saved many more um, had that been in our in our wheelhouse or, you know, we had a, we had a very narrow uh, lane as to what our workload was going to be uh, for that particular mission. And I felt like we could have done a lot more, but um, again, staying in your lane is so key when you're mm-hmm. uh, in those spaces. And um, so we were there. Uh, I, we got there at the height of Ebola uh, when there was no physical contact. And I think that's where the whole elbow bump came from. You've okay. seen that uh, activated a lot during uh, during uh, during COVID here. We've, we've seen the elbow bumps and masked up, but we were doing that way back uh, in, what is that, you know, seven, eight years ago. Uh, during Ebola, and I remember meeting the Minister Minister of Health and the Prime Minister uh, of Liberia, uh, 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 President Salif, and uh, we were already elbow bumping and what have you. And so that was a great experience. But as you indicated, I'm I'm it, it's a team effort. There were other mm-hmm. nurse practitioners on that team that I counted on, and nurse practitioners, PAs, and others, uh, physicians certainly, and um, that I counted on. But it's a team effort, and and um, uh, my success is their success, and so. Being uh, afforded that opportunity, had a great deputy, had a great chief medical officer, had great nurses. My my uh, my uh, uh, DON or, or the chief nursing officer was just outstanding. She's a research nurse and runs a, a place at NIH. And so I've had the fortune of working with some spectacular nurses and nurse practitioners at very high levels that are ES, uh, EIS officers at CDC. They're the uh, they're the ones that hunt down the viruses and stuff in the jungles of uh, Africa and other places when they emerge. And so just had a great experience there. And my experience was so emotional and uh, 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 great for me. My wife and I actually uh, sponsored 
uh, one of our patients that actually lived. We sponsored he and his wife to the U.S., and I'm proud to say he's in nursing school in Minnesota right oh, now. Oh, that's so wonderful. He a, yeah, he was a PA there, and um, Alvin Davis is his name. And I, matter of fact, I just talked to him yesterday. He had a presentation, but Alvin um, it, it was just wonderful. And, and and I knew that there there had to be some reason that this guy lived. Uh, I'd never seen anyone have such a rough time with any medical condition, and he did, but he lived, and so. We sponsored him to the U.S. about three years ago, so he's doing well, thriving, and uh, I hope that he'll add something to the nursing community when he uh, becomes a nurse. So, Liberia, that that was the epicenter of of Ebola. Everything was happening there. It was you were learning in the moment how to deal with this very aggressive, infectious disease, and we were everyone across the world. We were watching. And there you were, and you're learning in the moment about how to best address it. And I remember you shared this story when you came to visit us of how you would suit up in all of the PPE, and you'd go in and you'd be in this PPE for hours on end. And I thought that was just fascinating. And and now we've gone through COVID, and it's just interesting how these two remarkable infectious diseases really lined up. You learned so much with Ebola. So you told us about teamwork. You told us about the experience of learning in the moment about how to treat uh, people with this disease, Ebola, but also how you were learning in the moment how to set up the facility. And you had areas where you had to don and doff. And there was areas where you had to burn the the clothing and, and the bedding right. and things like that. I mean, how, that seemed like it was happening so fast. It was, it, you know, and, and and I mean, it was like all accelerator, no, I mean, all uh, gasoline, no brake, all accelerator, no brake in that moment. And um, we did uh, in time training. First time that first time in a long time that I've done in time training, because usually we have a understanding of what's going on. Now, let's just let's just digress for a second. Remember, the index case for Ebola in the U.S. was in Dallas. Thomas Duncan mm-hmm. died here in Dallas. Uh, on his trip from Nigeria. And so so it was it was at home before I even had an opportunity because I I reside. Our offices are in downtown Dallas. And um, and so we had uh, visibility on this whole thing in the U.S. um, before it kind of really made the news. And we were monitoring Thomas Duncan and and all hands were on deck with CDC. And, you know, people were petrified of, of this disease because this is something that we had not seen outside of West Africa for the most part. And, you know, with this hemorrhagic virus, there are three types of uh, Ebola. I think there's Marburg, uh, Zaire, and there's one other, oh, um, uh, Herndon, Herndon, Virginia. Mm-hmm. We had an outbreak in Herndon, Virginia in a uh, in a uh, non-human primate lab there. And so so we, we've had some experiences with Ebola, but we've never had any experience as healthcare providers responding to it. And that right. proved to be... Uh, uh, somewhat traumatic for some and uh, and an opportunity for others. And so you, you're right. The PPE was just unreal. Uh, we have videos of people that are going in PPE, going into what we call the hot zone or the high risk area behind the snow fencing. And I think I showed some of those photos uh, previously that we were, we were in PPE. But remember, it was 100 degrees or mm-hmm. 105 degrees. And so you're in PPE and you can't turn the air conditioning on in the hospital because... Uh, uh, most of the locals don't have air conditioning. So they live at whatever the normal temperature is 
uh, of the day, and so we couldn't turn the uh, air conditioning on for our own convenience. So you could think of uh, the 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 water loss, insatiable water loss from heat, uh, having that uh, PPE on. So that was that was really mind uh, mind boggling and eye opening for me uh, from a safety perspective because you know a, a medic or a uh, a nurse or a provider that's not taking care of their own selves that 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 puts everybody in danger particularly right. when you're working with the hemorrhagic virus and so that was one of the bigger missions you know Afghanistan was you know that was a different set of issues but Ebola certainly was uh, you know was in its own category at that time and obviously with covid you know that's a that's a different category altogether because we've seen a number of deaths here in the US I mean more than we've seen in the Civil War, which went on for what four or five years, and so we've seen those same astronomical uh, type of deaths with this disease because it's just non forgiving. So, and so that I think that's what's really fascinating is so you went, you arrived there, and you you and your team put together, set everything up. You were treating patients. You're working as fast as you could all suited up in PPE and, you know, you were developing these different zones of care and you learned so much there. And then you were, I remember you were telling us this story and it was January or February of 2020. And I remember saying goodbye to you as you were leaving Vanderbilt and lo and behold, COVID starts to really hit the United States and they're right back into it again. Your team is, going back and, and going through those similar steps again with a new type of infectious disease that we've never seen before. So tell us kind of what was happening then in, in early 2020, because I know you got on a plane right after that and went right in uh, to start to address the cases that were coming into the U.S. Absolutely. And so what we had simultaneously a couple of things going on, you know, our CDC strike teams, uh, which are made up of a lot of public health service officers, uh, went to Japan. We had uh, the cruise ship passengers that were right. trying to uh, get back into the United States and get off the ships. We, you know, that was the big fodder at the time. You know, we thought it was confined to the ships. And so the administration at that time made a command decision to protect the public. They were going to isolate these ships for a period of time. And then we saw that, you know, that was was not going to work. That was not the best strategy. And um, I was uh, sent down to be the military liaison between uh, DOD and the U.S. Public Health Service and HHS down in San Antonio at Lackland mm -hmm. Air Force Base, where we had a lot of the cruise ship passengers there. So there were some in California, and we kind of <clears throat> spread them out across the country at military installations to isolate them at that time. And so that was my first at bat uh, with uh, uh, with uh, uh, COVID. And, and in addition to that, <clears throat> we were dealing with it with from an HHS perspective because you you saw it proliferating in our hospitals people going into ICU. We saw a lot of uh, nursing homes being affected uh, uh, adversely. And so it was really problematic for us as a group and really trying to come up with something sustainable um, that would protect uh, our, our patients, our residents, and, uh, and, and certainly protect the caregivers at that time. And then we started to deploy a lot of the same mechanisms um, that we've seen deployed for um, uh, COVID. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me, for Ebola, we started to deploy some of the same techniques and, and what have you. And so uh, um, and, and, and so fast forward, my responsibilities mushroomed into me going to Washington, D.C. to work on behalf of the Surgeon General again. 
and in our headquarters area to run our uh, our operations center. Our, mm-hmm. uh, we call it the cell. It's the uh, U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps Operations Center, where we were deploying assets all over the country. And that uh, was uh, something that I was responsible for for a couple of months. Um, um, and then later, I was uh, called back to uh, D.C. to work in the Office of the Surgeon General and to help with the unaccompanied uh, minors uh, coming across the southern border at that time. And okay. so and then and then those responsibilities migrated or mushroomed, I should say, into, uh, again, helping with the covid uptick because we had seen another uptick and we started to send. And that was when the mon- monoclonal antibodies started to proliferate. Mm-hmm. We started to get those and roll those out. And so a lot of our states were asking for resources around the nation to get the monoclonal antibodies rolled out and, and to help uh, with the IV infusion and uh, IM injections with that. Right. Right. Wow. So this is just uh, the whole story is, you know, what I was watching was, you know, worked in the hospital, but everything that you were doing, I was kind of hearing it on the news or hearing it on the radio. We're not right there seeing what you're seeing every day. And, and in your line of work, you're always several steps ahead of the rest of the country as we are coming along and finding out more and more about um, these de- diseases and what's happening. I know that the um, uniform services did a lot in terms of being deployed to more civilian areas to help out because we were, I was in the hospital, we were all uh, uh, getting swamped and, and trying to care for all of these patients on our own learning about PPE and all of that. Yes. But of, oftentimes we reached out to uh, the uniform services to say, hey, tell us how you did this because we're going to have to set up a, 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 yeah, a hospital out at a, a convention center or in a right. massive parking lot. We, we didn't know uh, what we were doing. And, and quite often I would call on the nurse practitioners I knew that had a background in the military because I knew they knew how to set things up like this in, um, in, in, in just a record amount of time. So can you share a little bit more about what you were doing in terms of helping out with some of the civilian um, sectors during this time? Yeah. And if you remember uh, correctly during that time, DOD, um, uh, working with our DOD counterparts and all the uniformed services, we were sending assets all over the country as requested by the governors because there's a we, we have what we call the ESF-8 council meeting and it's part of the National Disaster Plan. And I tell people, they were like, well, you guys operated like 911. I said, mm-hmm. well, when the o- local resources of a community or of a state are overrun, we are 911. The VA, the DOD healthcare uh, sector, or DHA, uh, D- Defense Health Agency, uh, Public Health Service, and all federal assets that are in healthcare, we are the 911 for the country. Um, that includes the DMAT teams. We sent DMAT teams out. We sent uh, uh, nurse practitioners and PAs, and, and those complements are based on what the needs of those entities are, whether it's Vanderbilt, which is what, uh, level one trauma center, I, I, I'm assuming, uh, Parkland here in Dallas is a level mm-hmm. one trauma center. So those level one trauma centers, when they're overwhelmed, the community doesn't have any additional resources. So I remember having a ca- candid conversation with one of our one of my staffers, and he he mentioned he said, "Well, they're just treating us like we're we're the nine one one for the for the state." And I was like, "Well, actually, we're the nine one one for the government for the entire right. nation, right?" And so and so to your point, if you remember correctly, 
in, in our Native American indigenous uh, uh, areas, uh, they were really having struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Navajo Nation was struggling at that time with resources and getting nurses because these are very remote areas, getting resources out to those areas. And we really had to, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, relocate assets and re uh, re uh, administer assets to them across the country and not just uh, Navajo Nation, but uh, uh, local communities. We sent people to San Antonio. We sent people to Guam. We sent people to uh, the Northern Mariana Islands. We sent people to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, and not to not to mention California, Washington State, Alaska. Sent a lot of a lot of resources uh, to Alaska. But wherever the need was identified, we did our darndest to get those resources out there. And that was my job. It was twenty four seven, seven days a week. And I had what we call a bat phone, and and we were getting requests. Uh, direct requests were coming to me as an individual, and there's a process for that, as one can imagine, with the government. Right. And I would uh, let them know that, hey, you know. Nothing's done with the government until the paperwork's done. And so mm-hmm. we could send those assets out, but we we had a process that had to be uh, uh, adhered to and a vetting process as well. And what we would try to do at the height of this thing is figure out where was the greatest need and how could we effectu- effectuate change where the greatest need was at that particular moment in time. And um, And we didn't always succeed. I don't want to think, I don't want people to think that, you know, um, that we gave every state everything that they asked for, but um, sometimes we didn't have you know 150 uh, uh, infectious disease physicians, or we didn't have mm-hmm. 50 NPs. But what we did do is we sent what we had, and we tried to make that distribution equal across the board, so that we could get some resources into uh, almost every area of the country at, at, at different times, and then we reallocate those resources if we see it. Uh, uh, if we've seen that there there was a decrease uh, in, in the uptick, then we would start reallocating those assets to other areas that, that were of greatest need. And that wasn't a decision that I made. That was a, a committee decision. The ESFA Council would make that decision as a group. And, uh, and there was a lot of thought uh, that went into that and a lot of colleagues uh, around the table uh, helping to make those decisions. Right. I remember just um, when we heard that we were going to get some help it's just such um, a great team of experts that come in and say, okay, this is how you do it. And this is how you work in a, it's, it's like a mass casualty. It's, it's Absolutely. something we'd never seen before. And so you all came, it was just such a great um, day when, when you showed up and we were able to listen and learn. And I, I guess, did you were able to kind of assess the state of disaster preparedness across the nation? And I think we really realized that we had a lot of gaps and we could do a lot more. Uh, what what were your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think this this identified this helped us identify vulnerabilities within the system because these these uh, these disasters help us to make changes. If you go back to Hurricane Katrina. And I know you were around then and you understand some of the dynamics that occurred there. We've gotten a lot better. And and what I can say is each time we have a disaster of, of this magnitude or we have a national emergency or international emergency, for that matter, we learn and we take those uh, lessons learned when we do a hot wash or we do a, 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 a AAR after action report. We we incorporate that into the national disaster plan and we make those changes in real time. And we disseminate that information to our federal, state, and local partners 
so that they understand what the changes are, why they were made, how they were made, and how we uh, stand to improve the system. Are there gaps? Absolutely. Are there lessons to be learned? Absolutely. Um, did we do the best we could with an unknown enemy or uh, infectious disease? I think we did, and I think we are. Um, but it's a, it's an ongoing, uh, if you believe in the quality assurance or the QAPI, quality assessment performance improvement process, this is an ongoing thing. And we have to uh, we have to allow ourselves to, number one, make some mistakes, but more importantly, be ready to pivot at any time when the data substantiates we pivot. Right. right. And a lot of times we don't want to do uh, what the data says. We want to do what we're comfortable. And when we get taken out of our comfort zone, it can become problematic. And but my job as a nurse practitioner and as a leader in this space is to educate and get buy in from uh, executive and senior leaders and to operationalize what we think is best in that particular moment in time uh, for the for the general public. Right, right. And you did always so many steps ahead of the 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 public, and and we've learned so much. And certainly now we're seeing uh, much of what you taught us um, going into our programs, our educational programs as as nurses, as nurse practitioners, and healthcare um, uh, clinicians across the board, and so much more going in in terms of disaster preparedness. And and yes, there's only so much you can learn, but you can learn that, and you can learn how to pivot, learn how to follow that data. And we've, you know, as a country and as um, as across the world, we've seen this throughout COVID. Um, with all of the surges and the changes in the data and, and still COVID is very real today. Uh, it's, it hasn't gone away. It's very present and very, very real um, happening in the world today. And then, wow. Um, as we uh, entered into um, this past couple of months, now we are experiencing a war in the Ukraine and it's, I, I, it's just mind boggling all of the, the change and the shifting and being prepared and being a healthcare worker. It's, it's, it's heart wrenching really to see what's happening uh, in Ukraine and, and how can we help? And I know you have more insight there, but as um, a nurse practitioner, what, what would you say to me and to all of the others out there wondering how, how can we help? It's, it's really hard to see this playing out on TV and in the media. Yeah, and I think as I think as nurse practitioners and nurses and senior leaders within these spaces that we govern or operate uh, uh, operate within, you know, um, um, knowing your NGOs, your non-governmental organizations that are reputable, um, that if you want to help uh, with resources, financial resources, and others, that's a good space to start. I always tell people, American Red Cross, American Red Crescent, mm-hmm. <clears throat> typically helps in this space. Um, but uh, you know, this isn't as you indicated; it's an additional taxer. On, on the healthcare system around the world um, because we, you know, have seen a significant uptick in, the, in this uh, refugee population um, um, that was unexpected um, to happen. And as you know, uh, the numbers for COVID are starting to uh, tick up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we have to be cognizant of that, that as, as you indicated, it hasn't gone away. Um, we don't know exactly when it's going to go away, but whatever happens there, usually we see it in the U.S. in a few weeks or month, a month or so later. But in terms of uh, <clears throat> providing assistance uh, uh, to our uh, Ukrainian uh, neighbors, I think uh, you know uh, financial assistance is the best way to go for NPs and uh, uh, nurses uh, in this space. And if there's an opportunity to volunteer, I would just remind my colleagues that that is a war zone, so you need mm-hmm. to be 
be be mindful of that if you choose to go into that space. Um, obviously, being in the uniformed services, um, we've uh, we've not uh, opted to go into that space as of yet as a government uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, employee. Um, but we are sending resources. We are consulting at a very high level, certainly higher than my level, uh, consulting uh, with uh, NATO and others. But there, as as I've said before, with the federal government, there's always a pathway, and there's a pathway that you have to adhere to. Um, as an agent of the government. And so I've not been called into that space, but that's uh, that's one that certainly uh, uh, keeps me up at night right now. Um, that right. Uh, that we're, uh, you know, it, uh, time will tell what will happen in that. And so, uh, but but I think your financial resources as a nurse and nurse practitioner are certainly needed. And uh, if there are any uh, spaces on the web that you can contribute your expertise to, I think that would be uh, helpful as well. Right, right. And still and still trying to manage here at home uh, with all of the shortages and all of the healthcare needs here. It is quite um, interesting what's happening, to say the least. And without you as a leader in that space, um, it's, it's just so important that we have nurses like you, nurse practitioners, willing to step up and lead. And you've taken such an interesting and compelling an adventurous uh, pathway, to say the least, uh, in the uniformed services. And we are so grateful for your service. And it's really come through your expertise, but also your commitment to team. I know we didn't talk about that a lot, but um, that is that runs through, that thread runs through everything you say is how committed you are to team and teamwork. And I know that that is a huge uh, theme and, and, and expected in the uniform services. And just thank you so much, James. It's been such a nice opportunity to spend some time with you today. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And as you indicated, you know, um, th- this was not done on an island uh, in a solo effort. Um, I'm, I'm a product of all the people that have touched me from Rear Admiral Sega, Joel DeLay, many other nurse practitioners uh, in the public health service, uh, Stephanie Glenn, folks that are that are fellows, that are my colleagues, that I've uh, I've matriculated with in the public health service, and and some that like Admiral Sega, who's gone on to uh, uh, had a meteoric rise and has done great things for nurses and nurse practitioners, and certainly for AAMP. And so I'm just a I'm just a product of that environment, and 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 happy to be able to touch the hem of their garment, so to speak. That's wonderful, and thank you, thank you for all you do for AAMP as uh, for our listeners. Um, Captain James Dickens is also our region director and sits on our board of directors and helps to guide uh, the organization and listens to members every day to see what we can do more to support and provide resources for all of our nurse practitioners across the U.S. and across the globe as we move forward to the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, James. You are a shining example of nurse practitioner leadership and a testament to the importance of NPs in leadership roles. To our listeners, I want to urge you to become a part of your National Professional Association and add your voice to the 120,000 of our NP colleagues nationwide. AANP's membership offers many benefits to assist in your professional development and opportunities to expand your skills in leadership. Follow the link in this episode's description to see how AANP membership can support you and your career. 
Please subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.